Welcome to I Care Better, Endo Unplugged, where we talk about all things endometriosis. I'm your host, Jandra Mueller, pelvic floor physical therapist and integrative nutritionist. Welcome back, Christina, for part two of your story. Thanks, Jandra. We left off in part one up until before I even met you. Today, we are going to hear the rest of your story what it was like undergoing actual diagnosis, surgery, a little bit about what's come since your surgery, which now was in De- was December 2022. So we are now in August of 2023. So it's been some time. So we'd love to pick up where we left off last time. So um, where we left off last time was I had just gone through the process of trying to have a baby with my husband. When that stopped, what I did was I went back to my original um, obstetrician gynecologist group and saw the physician that I'd been seeing for years and explained that we had had we had failed IVF um, and that they were concerned that the endo was really much worse than could be seen on imaging. And this was based off of the biomarkers at this point, just for anybody picking up here, there was no confirmation of endo via surgery. At this point, it was the imaging and some of the biomarkers that were found, correct? Yes. And the fact that uh, my right ovary was the only ovary that was producing any eggs and Mm. the eggs would stop growing at um, 15 centimeters Mm. and would start shrinking despite being on the highest amount of um, fertility medications that they could give me Mm. safely. What he did was he ran some labs, um, saw the my, my CA-125, which we talked about last time, is a cancer marker typically, but can be found um, to be elevated in in anyone, um, but especially it can be elevated in women that have, or people that have endo. Uh, because of the elevation, and he knew that it had been elevated previously, but it was elevated slightly higher than before, um, he sent me immediately to um, oncology, mm-hmm. gynecologic oncology specifically. I got in pretty quickly, uh, was evaluated, had uh, imaging done. I believe that they did a ultrasound as well as an MRI and um, repeated labs. And I also had a discussion with a very close uh, friend of my best friend from college who is a gynoc surgeon, um, but she is located um, in the middle of the country. So not someone that I could easily see um, without going through a bunch of hoops. She was familiar with my gynoc and she said, you're in great hands. Please go ahead and see him. And so I did. He determined that there was no cancer concern and referred me back. Yes. Yay. (laughs) That was scary. And referred me back to um, an endo specialist who I saw and was, I think, probably the kindest and calmest, uh, warm person, physician that I'd met ever. And I thought that I was in great hands. Mm-hmm. We discussed some treatment options. I wasn't quite at the point where I was ready to do a hysterectomy, which was one of the options discussed. Um, There were some medications that were discussed, uh, Lupron in particular, um, and Orlissa. We discussed those, and my decision was I just wanted to wait. I was comfortable being in his care and uh, wanted to see what we could do um, otherwise. It was a really good decision on my part, but I didn't quite know it (laughs) at that point. (laughs) But on one of my follow-ups in his office, I saw that there was a flyer for a research study that he was running. So I asked about it because as a clinical researcher myself, I had never been on the other side. And I know Mm. quite a few of my colleagues have actually volunteered as either like a a healthy patient um, for a study that just needs healthy patients or otherwise to see um, what it's like as the patient um, or as the volunteer participant. So I thought, okay, I know that this may not help me. I'm very well aware of informed consent and what that is supposed to look like. I don't feel that bad yet. 
So mm-hmm. maybe I can hold out, see if this works. And if not, then maybe I'll have at least advanced the research a little bit and get a different perspective on what I do for work. So I did that. It was a six-month study. I didn't see any difference for myself, although I could definitely tell. Uh, oh, and it was an injection. So I do inject myself every day that I was having a uh, menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. I would have to inject myself, um, which I was okay with because I'd already done with that with all the IVF preparation. Yeah. I did that and I could definitely tell when I was getting the active um, drug because uh, because it was a study where they you for three months you got placebo and up the other three months you got um, active drug. And I could tell because it burned mm. like the Dickens when <laughs> I injected it when I was on the active drug. And I mentioned this to the doctor and he said, well, it's supposed to be the same. I said, well, it's not. So we just kind of left it at that. Um, After the six months was over, I sort of just was in a holding pattern. He asked me if I was ready to move on with anything else. I said, not really. By this point, I have always been pretty open about my own things that are going on Mm -hmm. in my life. Um, And especially with coworkers that I feel comfortable with. It's been nice because I feel like it gives people some clarity into what's going on with me and why I may not be available at, you know, seven o'clock at night. Yeah. All hours of the work week. Yeah. Because that's typically what the expectation was of me in particular, because I also was working a lot, like a lot of people that have a personality like I do. One of my coworkers that I mentioned this to had shared with me when she learned that I was going through this, that she had also had struggled with endo since she was young, um, was an athlete like I was and had had uh, multiple surgeries. And Mm. she encouraged me to look into um, both Nancy's Nook and I Care Better. It was on the I Care Better website that I found you. um, Oh, yay. Yay. I actually didn't know that. I didn't tell you, I guess. Nope. But that's cool. Um. And I think that I also found you on Nancy's Nook at the same time. So it was right, I think, right when you had been welcomed into, um, you know, one of their, the Nook's providers. Yeah, that, yeah. Their better provider list for a while. Cool. I reached out to you and I had also at the same time reached out to a couple of different uh, physicians, Uh, one in uh, the... Stanford area, another one in the Los Angeles area. And um, I had gone so far as to make an appointment with another in Los Angeles. And I had seen someone in Laguna Beach in between where all of those appointments were happening. I was exploring various different physicians. Uh, My friend that has endo um, that lives in mid-country had had a really good experience with her physician, who was also uh, cross-listed on both I Care Better and Nook. And Mm -hmm. so I considered flying there uh, to St. Louis and recovering in her apartment with Ron or, you know, somewhere else there and then flying home. But, you know, there's a lot of quality care and I have access to it here in California, especially in Southern California. So I decided to actually see you first before I made a decision about which doctor I was going to explore using. I'm really glad that I did because meeting you has changed the trajectory of my life, I think. Oh. Um, For many different reasons, but also because uh, you're such a caring and incredibly skilled provider and just a a wonderful person overall. That's so sweet. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. And I'm so bad with compliments. I yeah, I was just about to say I know that taking compliments can be hard, but I really, um, I really mean this because I've come across other providers who don't have great bedside manner, um, who might have the skill, but it doesn't really matter because you can't hear what they're saying because they're just not a good fit for you personality wise. Um, I think yeah. that you're able to use your vast skill set as well as your amazing bedside manner and your ability to listen Mm. really is huge. 
it's so important for these conditions, seeing so many complex conditions, endo in particular, because of the struggle for so many years, listening also gives really key information. I also want to put this out for any providers that are listening to this. As a provider, sometimes these complex conditions can feel really difficult and very overwhelming. You sometimes may feel like I don't have the skill or the knowledge. But one thing I would suggest for any provider out there wanting to get into this field, feel passionate, listening can give you some really key information. You can learn the other things as you go. But if you listen, you will hit key factors in these in these people's stories that can give you the information that you need to then s- seek out the right information. I agree with you 100%. The listening is so important. Yeah. Yeah. It really fosters a sense of someone cares can help me. Mm-hmm. If someone isn't listening to me, I automatically go to, okay, where is the gaslighting going to start? Mm-hmm. When is the gaslighting going to start? <laughs> yeah. What is this going to bring up for me or what is this going to happen to me? Because this has happened to me my entire life where I have not been listened to. I've been dismissed. I've been gaslit. And I've gotten to the point where I have, I'm pretty good about gaslighting myself without anyone even saying anything. Yeah. So lots of trauma rela- related to medical care. Uh, for me, and I know that I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I've been actively working through. Yeah. And listening isn't always an easy thing that comes naturally because I talk a lot. Me too. <laughs> so I'm glad really- that... <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. I do actually have to actively try to do that um, because I do talk a lot. Well, you're doing a really good job right now too because I <laughs> am, have been just talking, talking, talking. Well, yeah, this is your story. Something that you had said during a visit a couple of months ago after we put out the podcast, and I think there was three or four episodes, which included some patient stories that were also providers, you had said, I had a realization. The reason I've asked you multiple times, do I still need to be coming? I did not perceive that you were irritated about coming or didn't feel like it was helping, but your insight as to why you felt that way that you shared with me was really fascinating. Can you share kind of what you said and where that came from? Yeah. So um, therapy and shout out to my amazing therapist who um, has helped me significantly. She knows who she is. It was interesting to me because I kept, I was seeing this pattern um, and it was not just with you. It was also with Dr. Spring Robinson, um, with other physicians but maybe a little bit more with you because I didn't feel, I felt like I should be better, not like completely back to or at what someone would call normal. Maybe not having to go to pelvic floor therapy every single week. I saw myself having this pattern where I would ask you about once a month, do I still need to be coming every week? And you said, yes. And I said, okay. And I, so I, you know, came back every week and then the next month, the same thing would happen. And after listening to those stories and talking to my therapist and doing some just introspection, I realized that I am so keyed up with providers not being able to help me, me getting to a certain point where I am better enough that they think that I can handle it on my own or there's nothing else that they can do for me that I either stop going back because I feel that they're frustrated mm-hmm. with their, with the lack of progress that I am making. Mm-hmm. Um, almost like I'm not trying hard enough or there's something else going on, or I'm going to be dismissed as a patient, which to be fair, I don't think, I think it's only happened once in my life. But that was because I was told that the doctor was retiring, and I later learned that they, in fact, did not retire. So I'm not sure what happened with that, but it makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah. So part of the reason why I was asking you that on a pretty consistent basis was because I didn't want to be dismissed as a patient, and I felt 
better enough that I was like, okay, this is the point where people usually get kind of frustrated and don't know what to do with me. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to head it off or make sure that I do need to keep coming back and that you share my opinion that I need to keep coming back. Yes. And what do you remember what you said to me? I don't remember the exact words I said, but I do, I think I remember saying along the lines of that this was sort of a change in status. You had just had surgery. There was a lot going on with your care just from post-operatively, given all the musculoskeletal stuff you have, the potential for EDS, and just that I think that there was this push for you to be better on a specific timeline. Yeah, because I don't, I'm not very patient. So I don't do well with things that are a process, like even things that are a process, I try to force. I want to tell you what you said to me because it affected me so deeply that like I had to pause and then it was the end of our, um, the end of our session. But I think you stopped what you were doing and you looked at me and I stopped what I was doing because you were stopping and looking at me and you said, I don't think that I've ever met someone who as as motivated to get better and tries so hard to get better as you do. I very clearly remember saying that I think on two occasions and I wasn't relating it to that particular visit, but yes, it's so true. Um, and I got a little teary again as I said it um, because that's how I feel, but at the same time, there's this there's this other part of me that's like, but maybe you're just making this all up, or it's all in your head. And even though there's physical proof that that's not the case, my brain is trying to find a way to be okay with um, being dismissed. Yeah, that almost like a protective mechanism to not be hurt. Yeah, like a guard. But yes, for everybody listening, so before surgery, I just want to share a little bit about all the things that you were doing. Number one, you showed up to every appointment. Maybe there was a cancellation, but there was a very legitimate reason. Always reschedule. Always came on time and prepared. I think the issue more so with you was kind of roping you back to being like rest is important more than like doing. And you weren't overdoing it. So don't get me wrong because that can be an issue too. But I think that there's this disconnect between mentally where you're at and physically where you're at. But it was, what can I do next? You were very active and engaged in your own care and participation, not just waiting for instructions, always asking more questions, you know, from all of the foam, cell foam rolling, strengthening things that were appropriate, going to various providers like, hey, we recommend this. Why don't we try this? very engaged in the process. You definitely stood out to me in particular because I was always amazed at how much you had going on that was impacting your immune system and you still kind of fought through it. And you would come up and say, you know, this week I wasn't able to do anything. I had this, this, and this. And it it made sense. Your body needed rest. So I felt like, I don't know, I felt saddened when you kind of shared that that was what you thought. Not that I felt personally offended or anything by that or that you really thought that about yourself, but it was it just painted a picture more into Christina's life that I don't see in this hour appointment every week at PHRC. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think being a workaholic, I can definitely diagnose myself as that. You know, leading up to surgery, I mean, I intentionally delayed surgery six months so that I could finish working on the project that I was working on and hand it off in a nice, neat little bow when it was done. Mm -hmm. So after I saw you and I told you about what was going on and the doctors that I'd seen and the suggestions that had been made, you were, I think, not necessarily familiar with the gynoc, um, but Mm -hmm. definitely familiar with the endo specialist that I'd been seeing. The very last visit that I had with the gynoc, um, I asked some questions that you had helped me understand the importance of. Do they do excision surgery? What would my hysterectomy look like? What would be involved with that, et cetera? When he explained to me that um, they would just remove my uterus and um, fallopian tubes and ovaries, um, leaving an ovary if it was okay, 
you know, removing everything if, if it needed to be removed, but any additional lesions that they found, they would leave because with the removal of the uterus, that there would be no need to excise those. So I said, okay, thank you very much, you know, very politely um, left. And then Ron at that point was <laughs> at the uh, ready because he was going to every single doctor's appointment with me, um, even if he couldn't come in and he couldn't come into that one because we had uh, my daughter with us and she mm. was under the age where she could be even in the waiting room because it was still COVID. Yeah. So I left there and I think immediately made an appointment to see Dr. Spring Robinson who you had suggested and who by some miracle of all miracles takes insurance. Yes. So I want to break off and ask some questions because as she's getting busier, there's a lot of pushback because as of yet, there isn't really talk about her on some of these mainstream, I guess you can call them vetting sites. Although hopefully that changes soon and she submits her videos to I Care Better. <laughs> Knowing that you had familiarity with Nancy's Nook and I Care Better, though you trusted me in my suggestions, did you have any question about her ability? No. When I met her and I spoke to her and she listened to me the same way that you listened to me, and I knew that she had done one of your surgeries yeah, as well, Yeah, and I thought, okay, anything where you can have an experience as the patient and then still suggest that person at working in the same or in a very similar uh, capacity and still recommend that person, then no, I didn't really have any questions. I was curious about why she hadn't submitted her um, video vetting to um, I Care Better. And that was one of the reasons that I had was so motivated to try and get you into my mm. surgery as an observer. <laughs> I know. Ultimately didn't work out, but she did videotape um, all almost six hours of surgery. There was seven discs of your surgery. <laughs> okay. Uh, just as a side note, uh, my mom sat and waited during the entire surgery Aww. in the waiting room. She refused to leave. Um, my husband couldn't stay because he can't just sit there and wait. Like mm -hmm. he has to go and do something and distract himself. Um, and she just kept seeing in surgery, in surgery, in surgery, in surgery. And um, she waited until I was in my room and able to have visitors. And then she saw me and then she could go home. As long as she saw me, she was yeah. fine. Watching your videos was very interesting. I was so excited to get the discs. I was preparing to do my course that April too and was really excited about putting together a video to show I had seen some of her other videos because she had just started videoing in preparation to submit them. And normally you see her go in, they assess everything, they take the manipulator, they move the uterus back to really see deep down into the rectovaginal septum. She looks at all the peritoneum in and around the pelvic organs. And then of course, into the diaphragm and up through the liver, the typical process that the endo experts do. Normally she goes in and you know, it's going, she goes through her routine. It was so interesting watching your video because it was sort of like this, whoa, and okay, we're going to, um, okay, let's go. Okay. I, okay. Let's just go. <laughs> Where do you even start? Because everything was so adhered and there was endo upon endo upon endo in your pelvis. I've seen several videos now of different surgeons' videos, and I've never seen anything like yours. To be fair, I imagine it's very different seeing a video of a patient that you've been treating for, at that point, seven months, and correlating what you can feel and what you can tell uh, upon exam to what you see in that video, right? But just to see the extent in somebody's pelvis was amazing. Well, and I was surprised too. I think an important thing to note to note for Dr. Spring Robinson, there was no there was no diagnostic surgery for me from anyone, Correct. much less her. So she went in with imaging, you know, ultrasound and a recent MRI, but one thing that we weren't able to get done uh, before surgery, and because I was having significant symptoms breathing, she made a request to do imaging to do an MRI of my diaphragm and my and my stomach, abdominal 
section um, versus just the pelvic section. And my insurance denied it. They wanted us to do an x-ray, which isn't going to show anything. And they wanted to do, you know, X number of things before we could do schedule the MRI. And it was too late at that point to get it Mm -hmm. done before surgery. So she went in basically blind, Mm -hmm. just what she could feel upon exam. And the large endometrioma that was on my left ovary. I mean, I'm still wildly, and I will always be wildly impressed with her. I think the other thing that I would like to note too, is that I have another protective mechanism. And I think that this happens to a lot of people uh, where I, my mind disconnected from my body almost entirely to the mm-hmm. point where my pain system was so heightened um, that I don't think that I was feeling as much pain as I would have had I actually been connected to myself or I would have been in surgery much, much sooner. Um, I saw her for the first time last year in the beginning of June or like maybe mid June. So June of 2022. And she looked at me and she was ready to do surgery as soon as possible. She said, okay, when do you want to schedule surgery? Um, my, my schedule's a little bit tight because it's summertime and everybody wants to, you know, do it while their kids are out of school and they don't have to worry about doing all that. And I was like, oh, yeah, uh, maybe, I mean, I'm okay with waiting until like September or so. And then we got closer to September and my project at work got extended. So I said, you know what, I'm not comfortable leaving this. Like I really want to finish this project out. I've been working on it for almost two years. Can we delay? And she was like, yeah, sure. If you think that you can delay, we can delay. I was like, great. So first week in December. (laughs) So that's what we did. And again, the project got delayed, but at that point I was in so much pain and literally non-functional most of the time that I I couldn't delay it any longer. When you did your post-op or when you understood what they found, what they did, Can you talk a little bit about that? I will tell you what I know, and then maybe you can fill in a little bit of the gaps there um, with some of it. So I know that I had a, and I had a large fibroid and that had been there for for years. It had been stable in size, um, was in a location that was supposed to not interfere with my ability to um, carry a child to term safely. Uh, I had a large endometrioma on my left ovary, um, although it was uh, thought that it was still ovarian tissue and not just an endometrioma. It did end up being just a, a, no longer any sort of ovarian tissue, just a gigantic endometrioma. Yeah. It like enveloped your ovary. Yes. The fibroid was, I think, larger than she thought that it was going to be. So I'm not sure what happened between imaging or if it was just appeared smaller because of the way that the MRI is done. But my right ovary, what looked completely normal, she did remove obviously my uterus, um, the left ovary, um, both fallopian tubes, and then excised, I think about 20 different lesions. Three of those lesions were on my diaphragm, uh, which explains the breathing issues. Uh, There was an additional lesion on my diaphragm that uh, was not able to be removed um, because it was too close to my heart. And she did not have a cardiothoracic surgeon um, in the uh, suite with her because the insurance would not allow an MRI of my diaphragm. I'm just pulling up one of your pictures and I'm going to screen share it. From what I understand, the diaphragm wasn't an issue um, with that one lesion because it was a superficial one. And with all of the um, other lesions um, being removed, as well as my uterus, it should have just died on its own. And I haven't so far had any issues with my breathing um, other than the muscular issues that I've had uh, where my chest really literally would not expand the way that it was supposed to um, because I had been breathing incorrectly for, I don't know, years. There was a lot of myofascial restrictions that were probably secondary to the fact that you were impacted by your diaphragm, your lungs, and who knows at what point were those lesions maybe responding to hormones and bleeding every month and causing irritation. And that chronically develops into these different postures and positions that we adopt for comfort and really for our body to be able to breathe optimally and get oxygen in 
if it's impacted one way, your body's going to shift and change because your brain needs oxygen. It doesn't care how it's going to get that oxygen, but your body and your joints and your muscles do essentially. Surgery doesn't necessarily undo all of those patterns, but it may undo the main trigger as to why you're going into those, but it doesn't take away the years of the musculoskeletal changes that have occurred. Which is what I've been dealing with most of the last eight months, along with significant viral issues, um, Mm -hmm. chronic fatigue. For the first six weeks after surgery, I felt fantastic. Mm -hmm. I went to my two-week appointment with uh, Dr. Spring Robinson, and I felt great. And to the point where when I went home, and she had said, you know, you can really, you can probably start exercising more aggressively, like at the six week point. But she said, I want you walking as much as you can, like about an hour a day, just mm-hmm. to keep everything moving and make sure that you're, you know, staying on track with just moving your body around and not yeah. laying in bed all the time. Yeah. So I'm going to share real quick your picture. The one that I was like, oh my goodness, here we go. So what you can see in the video, not so much the picture to orient people watching this on video. This is the front of the body um, where my cursor is. I don't know if you can see that like right up here. This is the front. This is the left side. This is the right side. And this is the back. So this is the uterus, which... My understanding is this was the fibroid. I can't imagine how that would not be impacting your ability to have a safe and full-term pregnancy. And then over here is the fallopian tube, essentially, and underneath and kind of pulling under is the endometrioma. Or in the video, you can see her trying to assess everywhere and to get under that left endometrioma, it it just pulled back layer upon layer of different lesions. You have an MRI that shows you have an endometrioma, you knew you had a fibroid, but I don't even think based on those images that this was expected going in. No, I I don't believe that either. And I do know um, one other thing about this particular side of my body. Um, was that I that ureter on that side was also completely entangled in what was happening with the ovary and the fallopian tube. Yep. So she had to dissect it apart from everything to actually save that ureter. So which explains why I had chronic um, UTIs as well. So when you were told all of this, what did you feel getting that information given all you have been through at that point? Um, I think it took me a, a long time to really absorb uh, what had gone on. And it's taken me up until I think maybe even two months ago to realize the impact that this has had on my life over the last 20 years, over the last 10, over the last five, and even over the last year to six months or Mm -hmm. since my surgery, because I was having a really hard time not being back at work. Every time I go to the doctor or talk to my friends um, and they see my talk to my family and they see what what I'm going through and what I've been through and they know somehow I have a, a black hole for what's happening with myself. Like if this was happening to a friend of mine, I would absolutely be in the same grouping as my friends and family and providers are, which is I bring up, hey, so a friend contacted me and they're talking about this thing that's happening at work and I want to be doing that at work. Can I go back to work now? And everybody Mm -hmm. looks at me and sometimes it's like the head snap is so fast and it's like, no. You cannot go back to work yet. And I'm like, but why not? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, we're not explaining this to you again. Yeah, it's amazing how our brains do that. And I think it's different for every person. But we've talked about almost just kind of that identity of this is who I am. And I just want to not consciously, but dive back in and 
focus on something else. Yeah. I mean, I would like my life to get back to normal. I would like my finances to get back to normal because even though I have a lot of privilege, I have family support um, and I've been able to pay for, you know, out of pocket visits to you every single week uh, for a year. We're at the point where I've had to scale back my visits because I cannot afford it. And I am, we're in a pretty good chunk of debt um, because of all of the medical stuff. And because I was only supposed to be out for a maximum of 12 weeks of work. Mm -hmm. So we didn't change our spending habits or anything. So I've, you know, we're trying to get back to a good spot with that. And we'll get there. Like, I'm not concerned about it. But again, it's one of those process things where like it's going to be a little bit of time and it makes yeah. me super uncomfortable. So I just want it to be to be gone now. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, these are the struggles of so many people that go through this. I mean, it, do- it also doesn't help that I've been having a significant issue with the um, disability insurer that my company uses, mm-hmm. uh, jumping through hoops with them and getting a final disapproval of my disability. So I'm now at the point where I have to file an appeal and I've had zero issue with the state. Zero. These are some of the things that I think really need to change in the overall healthcare system. How many people just say, you know what, this is too much of a headache. I'm okay and I'll just suck it up because I don't want to deal with the headache of it. If you even have that ability to be able to be in a comfortable spot not to make that appeal, which I don't think is many. There's so many barriers to getting help when it comes to these types of things that it's almost feels not worth it because the stress of it can be enormous. Yeah. And that was actually one of the pieces of feedback that I gave to my HR representative who was also amazing. You know, there have been clinical research studies done that show that stress um, can delay healing. So when I talked to her, I said, you know, (laughs) I told that to the insurance company person when I spoke to them on the phone. Um, I'm going to tell you too, but this is at, it's at the point where I'm generally concerned for the fact that I won't have a job when I go back yeah, or when I'm released to go back. And it's not that I don't want to go back. Like I want to go back for so many different reasons. You know, I, my friends are getting promotions. They're working on these cool things. Um, they're like doing amazing things that I want to do that too. Now that we're here in August, 2023, reflecting on the many years of chronic illness and understanding this disease, getting diagnosed, surgery, and having a better understanding of what was appropriate, what was not appropriate, and just a better understanding of the how the process should have been. Anything that you would have changed or you can share with people listening? Um, yeah, definitely. I A few things. Uh, some, th- some things that we've already brought up or like maybe touched on a little bit. The first thing is it's annoying and y- we hear this repeated over and over again is that you have to be your own advocate. That assumes that you are comfortable enough challenging what is a um, uneven power dynamic. So, but if you're not comfortable with someone and you don't feel like you're getting the care that you want or need, you're not being listened to, go somewhere else. Reach out to me. Jandra's information is all over the place. Reach out to her. If there's some issue, I'm happy to help someone, even if you just need someone to listen to. The second thing is if you're uncertain of what's going on in your body and you don't feel like you really are connecting what you're feeling with what's happening in your brain, maybe something like what was happened, what's happened to me and what my body has developed as a protection mechanism with just a disconnection is happening to you as well. I have to say I am working really hard at getting that back together. And I'm noticing quite a few things about myself. Like I'm constantly sitting pitched forward. I curl my toes up all the time when I'm standing because I've never, I have not been comfortable standing for years. Um, I, when I did have to stand, my right hip was always jutted out which you would think would make that side the stronger side, but it is actually not. And my entire right side of my body has basically seized up to the point where 
even when I'm foam rolling consistently, which is one of the things that has helped me a lot and that I can do on my own, like once a day at a certain point before surgery, I was going twice a day, find something that you can do that you can do on your own and then find people that can help you. Mm -hmm. Um, even if it's online at a distance, whatever you need to do, um, Going back to something we touched on very briefly is informed consent. Such an important piece of endo. As a researcher, that is the very first thing that we look at when we before we even touch anything else in a patient's chart. Yeah. Can you explain what informed consent is? So informed consent at a very high level is that paper that they hand you and tell you, here, this is these are all of the risks and um potential benefits. We need you to sign this before we can move forward with your treatment. As a patient, I acted how I would assume most patients act. I did a cursory glance for things that like when I've had laser hair removal or something, it's like, you know, one sheet of paper, you know what the risks are, you just sign it real quick and like whatever. There were others where I've paid more attention. I definitely paid a little bit more attention to the um, infertility uh, informed consent paperwork. Um, I took that home. I read it. I didn't really pay too much attention to what could happen if you have these conditions, because part of informed consent is knowing what you're, what you have, what's going on in your body and having an appropriate diagnosis. And then having someone explain what that diagnosis is. It's not just a piece of paper that most people don't read or has big legal jargon words, sentences that make it hard to understand because from a legal perspective, it has to be worded in a certain way. Informed consent is knowing that the patient understands the whole picture. Mm -hmm. And I definitely got that with Dr. Spring Robinson, where she went through everything. We talked about it well beforehand. And I was incredibly impressed because as a patient in the previous endospecialists um, research study, that didn't really happen. There are certain things that we require in research for informed consent to have occurred properly. And one of those things is that you have to have access to the physician or the physician has to actually actually go through the consent with you. Um, I don't think that happens a lot um, in regular practice. I've seen it and I know I've seen it distinctly not happen in research and there have been pretty significant consequences for the physicians doing that research or there can be if it's a consistent thing, but there's also a governing body that overlooks all research and makes sure that the informed consents are written in a way um, that can be read at a certain grade level for research to occur. There are a lot of regulations regarding it. Informed consent really should be an ongoing discussion, not Mm -hmm. just a one-time, here's this paper, please uh, look it over and sign it, ask us any questions, and then it's done. It's a constant check-in of, are you still comfortable with what we're doing? How are you feeling? What is happening? You know, have there been any issues, et cetera? And I don't think... I know for sure for me as the patient, some of them I literally just kind of like paged through. They came in and said, do you have any questions? And I said, nope, and then sign it and then done. So there's a lot of issues with informed consent being properly executed, especially in endo. The basis requires both the physician and the patient to have a generally good understanding of what should be happening For example, the surgeon you're going to, if they don't realize that excision surgery is the proper tool, the informed consent is skewed a bit to their knowledge and perception because of their beliefs or lack of information may give you their full knowledge. So for them, they are providing informed consent, but without all of the information. On the patient side of things, which patients with endometriosis are often the most educated patient population because they have to be unfortunately, but it is still good to be informed. There still may be many instances where you don't know what you don't know. And so when somebody says, do you have any questions? If you don't know what you should be asking from your end as a patient, no, I don't have any questions. Or you ask the few that you have, but there is so much information still lacking because of the lack of knowledge on both provider and patient in certain instances. And so therefore informed consent is 
that box is checked. So there's a lot of issues beyond just explaining what should be happening. It requires educated and trained professionals, which not every person is. And it requires a lot on the patient then at that point to ask the right questions, which they may not know what those questions are. To be fair, all of this is supposed to happen during a during a, a scheduled visit, which as we all know, insurance now gives providers, what, seven minutes to see a patient. So you can't even touch on the start of an informed consent discussion with seven minutes, especially when it's complicated like these would be for endo patients. We are still not dealing with a standardized system to implement these things. And so you still are dealing with certain people's own bias as as objective as we want to be. There is still that level, which I think has created also problems despite bringing some really good information to become available for patients. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, even even someone like me who has that analytical researcher brain, I got overwhelmed very quickly by the amount of information that was available at both I Care Better and Nancy's Nook. And the fact that it's self-directed is great because that means that you can go back when you're able to for myself. And I'm sure that I'm not the only one. I went back to it maybe a couple of times, but I didn't do the level of research that I probably would have done had I not trusted the care providers that I had found, those being you and uh, Dr. Spring Robinson. I always want to be perfect at everything. So the fact that I didn't go through and read every single file um, still kind of like haunts me a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel that. It's been a long journey. And obviously, I'm not at the finish line yet. Um, I think that when I'm finally allowed to go back to work, I will be approaching it differently and maybe not working 60 to 80 hours every single week before my surgery. That was, I was still doing that, but like definitely circling the drain Mm -hmm. (laughs) the last month or two before surgery. Well, we're excited to hear where you go. You mentioned wanting to focus on some different research aspects, things that might relate a little bit more into the care of women's health or endometriosis. So we're excited to see your next adventures with work, and maybe there will be a update bonus episode when that happens. Yeah, and maybe I'll have um, some other answers because, you know, as you know, my recovery hasn't gone as anyone expected to, and I've had various issues starting at that six-week point where I started to not feel great, despite emailing Dr. Spring Robinson right after my uh, two-week follow-up. Hey, when can I go to um, pole dancing class? And she was like, "Um, what? (laughs) Did you do that before? And I was like, no, I want to start it. It sounds fun. And she's like, I'll see you at your eight-week (laughs) follow-up. And sure enough, I started feeling terrible. And we figured out that I had um, some significant viral load issues um, and recently have been diagnosed with chronic fatigue. I'm being evaluated for mast cell activation syndrome. There is some suspicion based on my prior history uh, with the detached retinas, different orthopedic issues, in particular my knees starting when I was about 13, having significant issues with those that I might have something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I definitely have some hypermobility. Um, it's just a question of what it's caused by. Yeah. For more on that, listen to Tanya Dempsey's, Dempsey's uh, episode, who we had earlier on the show, who is a mast cell activation syndrome expert. And she talks a little bit about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility. As a PT, you can absolutely still be you know, tight because it's not a muscular issue per se. It's a joint and ligament laxity, though connective tissue is throughout. So that's why there are so many different types of EDS, connective tissue issues, essentially. So you can be tight and still have EDS. Yeah. And I really, um, I appreciated Dr. Dempsey's episode because when I heard that portion, especially about the EDS, which is kind of what triggered me to ask about it. I think both you and Dr. Spring Robinson, I saw you guys on the same day and I mentioned it to you both that same day and you both were like, we would be shocked if you didn't have that. And I think that adds a little bit of a struggle to in your recovery because a lot of the stuff that you're dealing with now aside from the viral load, is a lot of musculoskeletal issues. And I think that 
it's a very fine line of strengthening and resting because of some of the laxity in in the joints. So many variables, though endo was absolutely one of them. You know, this just kind of highlights that you can have an amazing surgery, the right surgery, but given the different symptoms people can present with or findings, while excision surgery is a key and crucial part of it, it's not the whole picture in those with more complex disease processes going on. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. We got two good parts to reference, and I think these were some really important topics tying in some of the specialists we've brought onto the show thus far. Thank you again for sharing your story, and I do look forward to doing maybe a bonus episode in the future when you head back to work, and even when we're allowed to really dive into the surfing study. would love to hear your experience with that. I did really well yesterday. I didn't stand up all the way, but I definitely, I was up on both knees, um, which I was very happy about. I was dying last night and like I could barely get out of bed this morning. Well, yeah. After last time we went surfing, I was so sore, so tired, but that good, just exhaustion feeling. And then I woke up the next day and I was so sore. Yeah. Well, thank you, Christina. Thank you so much, Jandra. It's really been great. And um, if anybody reaches out to you um, through the podcast, just let me know. You know, we can talk about ways that people can get in touch with me. I am not big on social media. I mean, weirdly, I am open with my stuff, but I'm much better in person. Um, Like, I just kind of feel a little hesitant to put myself out online. I think with what I'm wanting to do with being more involved in advocacy for endo and other chronic illnesses, I am going to have to push my comfort zone on that a little bit. Well, we will keep everyone updated how to reach you. If anyone reaches out to me, I'm happy to direct them your way. Thank you again for sharing your story. For anybody listening, we would love for you to subscribe or share this podcast with somebody you think may benefit. And we are on all platforms, essentially. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and I Care Better's YouTube channel. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Endo Unplugged, presented by I Care Better. We hope you found our discussion insightful and empowering. Remember, you are not alone in your journey with endometriosis. Together, we can raise awareness, support one another, and drive positive change in the understanding and management of this condition. Tune in weekly to I Care Better Endo Unplugged for more inspiring conversations, expert insights, and practical tips to help you navigate life with endometriosis. If you have any questions, suggestions, or personal stories you'd like to share, we'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on our website, iCareBetter.com, or social media platforms at iCareBetter. And let's continue this conversation. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Together, we can make a difference for those living with endometriosis.